I'm Jeffrey Rosen, President and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And this week we tackle a question that is the opposite of nonpartisan, and that is partisan gerrymandering. Last month in Wisconsin, for the first time in three decades, and only the second time in American history, a federal court ruled that the state's legislative districts were unconstitutional because they would unduly benefit one political party over another. Uh, this is not a new issue. Gerrymandering, uh, which I should actually pronounce gerrymandering, takes its name from one of our founders, Elbridge Gerry. I've learned to be pedantic about that because Elbridge Gerry sits in Signers Hall at the National Constitution Center in the back of the room, along with the two other refuseniks, the signers who refused to sign the Constitution because it contained no Bill of Rights, and that was uh, Edmund Randolph and uh, uh, Mason. Um, but uh, Elbridge Gerry drew voting districts that looked like salamanders in order to entrench incumbents, and that's why they're called gerrymanders or gerrymanders. And over the years, uh, I'm going to call it gerrymandering because it sounds too pedantic to use the hard G. Gerrymandering has confounded legislatures and courts as they've grappled with its impact on our politics and their powers to stop it. Joining me to discuss challenges to gerrymandering and the possibilities for reform are two of America's leading experts in election law. Nicholas Stephanopoulos is assistant professor of law at the University of Chicago Law School. Nick is currently representing the plaintiffs in the Wisconsin case, which is called Whitford versus Dill. And Michael Morley is an assistant professor of law at the Barry University Duane O. Andreas School of Law. Mike was counsel of record at the Supreme Court for Sean McCutcheon in the landmark First Amendment case McCutcheon versus FEC. He also wrote about the Elections Clause for the National Constitution Center's thrilling interactive constitution, along with Frenita Tolson of Florida State University. Nick, Mike, thank you so much for joining. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. My, my pleasure, too. This is great. It is great. Uh, and uh, I, I'm so thrilled to have you. Let's jump right in. Um, uh, Mike, can you tell us about the Wisconsin case uh, what did the court hold and what was the constitutional standard? Absolutely. So the issue was whether or not the Constitution limits the ability of state legislatures to take political considerations, specifically partisan advantage, into account when crafting state legislative districts. The most recent plurality ruling from the Supreme Court had indicated that this was a non-justiciable issue, that there aren't any judicially manageable standards. The Constitution doesn't really give us enough guidance about what legislative districts should or should not look like in terms of their political composition. And so as a result, the Supreme Court declined to craft those standards on its own. Here, the the court decided that taking the Equal Protection Clause into account with the First Amendment that combined these provisions do actually impose the ability of state legislatures to engage in this type of political gerrymandering. And the court crafted a three-pronged test that it looks at. It considers whether a particular redistricting scheme, in the words of the court, was intended to to place a severe impediment on the effectiveness of citizens' votes based on their political affiliation. 
Secondly, it looks at the effects of a particular redistricting scheme, whether in effect it winds up impairing the effectiveness of people's votes based on political affiliation. And finally, it considers whether there are other non-political grounds, what it terms legitimate legislative grounds for crafting for crafting districts. One of the things that's especially interesting to me about the ruling is that the court has adopted very strict restrictions on racial gerrymandering. And so a lot of the time what you see in racial gerrymandering cases, the defense is, oh, we're not racially gerrymandering, we're politically gerrymandering. We're not trying to discriminate or to draw districts based on racial grounds. We're trying to draw districts that will be polit politically advantageous to us. And so what this ruling does is take one of the most common defenses in racial gerrymandering cases and identify that as its own independent type of constitutional violation. Fascinating. Thank you for that extremely helpful summary. Nick, you were at the center of the Wisconsin case. In fact, the majority accepted uh, your uh, proposed standard for measuring partisan gerrymandering. You offered it with Eric McGee, Eric, uh, McGee and you call it the efficiency gap. The majority said we find the maps were intended to burden the representational rights of Democratic voters through the decennial period by impeding their ability to translate their votes into legislative seats. Describe what the efficiency gap is and how the court applied it in this case. Um, sure. So the efficiency gap is uh, one of several uh, available measures of what we call uh, partisan asymmetry. Uh, in a 2006 case called uh, Lulac v. Perry, uh, the Supreme Court expressed interest in coming up with a partisan gerrymandering standard based on this notion of partisan symmetry. Uh, all partisan symmetry really means is that uh, an electoral map uh, treats the major parties symmetrically in terms of how their votes in the state as a whole uh, translate into seats in the legislature. And uh, the efficiency gap is a measure of partisan symmetry that compares the uh, two major parties' numbers of wasted votes. And so wasted votes are not votes that are you know, thrown into the trash. Uh, they're uh, votes that don't contribute to uh, a candidate winning office. Uh, and it can take two forms. So there are uh, surplus votes, which are votes, ca votes cast for a winning candidate but in excess of the 50% plus one threshold that a candidate needs for victory. Uh, or they can be votes that are cast for a losing candidate. Uh, and so in that case, all of the, the votes cast for that candidate are, uh, are lost. Uh, and so all the efficiency gap is, is the uh, difference between the two major parties' respective wasted votes in an election uh, divided by the total number of votes that were cast in an election. And uh, the reason why this metric has promise is that it captures in a single uh, easy-to-use number the uh, direction and the magnitude of the gerrymandering in a district plan. Um, all all uh, partisan gerrymandering takes place uh, either by uh, cracking the other side's voters or by packing the other side's voters. And the efficiency gap tells you in a single figure uh, who is benefiting or who is being harmed by the cracking and packing and what the magnitude of that advantage or disadvantage is. Uh, and the Wisconsin court didn't say that the efficiency gap is the entirety of the test for partisan gerrymandering, 
But the court said that it's uh, part of the evidence that uh, courts can and should consider in determining whether a district plan has, uh, in fact, a discriminatory effect on one party. Uh, thanks so much for that, uh, Nick, and, and congratulations for having the efficiency gap accepted by the Wisconsin court. Mike, what is your response to the idea that the efficiency gap is a plausible constitutional standard, recognize that a majority of the Supreme Court has expressed interest in the idea that partisan gerrymandering might be justiciable if a manageable standard could be agreed on? Well, one of the one of the questions that the theory necessarily raises is what type what approach to constitutional interpretation do you take that leads you to an efficiency gap outcome, right? Certainly if you lay the text of the constitution against against political a politically gerrymandered map, nothing in the text directly tells you you need to use an efficiency gap looking to original intent, looking to structuralist principles. This really seems to be more of a legal realist notion that there there's an extrinsic conception of fairness, one that isn't rooted in certainly our nation's history and traditions in past elections that have been held that there's this that there's this extrinsic conception of fairness that can be imported into the constitution and if you actually look at the constitution structure far from trying to craft elections as a process that is removed from politics elections are enmeshed in politics if you look at the voting uh, the counting the votes in the electoral college it's not the courts it's not some neutral arbiter it's congress that ultimately counts the votes if you look at for who's responsible for determining the outcome of congressional elections each house is the judge of its own elections and returns far from trying to strip politics and political considerations away from elections the constitution structurally entrusts the electoral process, much more so to the political branches than the legislative, than the judicial branch. I mean, we saw this last term in the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission case, where the Constitution says the legislature of each state shall be responsible for crafting the rules dealing with congressional elections. And the Supreme Court reinterpreted the word legislature to mean any legislative means through which a state passes laws, including public referenda, citizen initiatives. And if you read that opinion, it's precisely because the majority rejected the notion that the political branches should be in control of the electoral process. It expressed distrust of the political branches, and it reinterpreted the Constitution to impose greater limits on them. So I agree that certainly Nick's theory and the, the theory that the, the, the court adopted in this case is consistent with what the majority did in Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. And there have been there have there have been smoke signals from the court suggesting that they're open to or at least some justices are open to reconsidering adopting a partisan gerrymandering standard, but at least under many approaches to constitutional interpretation, I think it's directly contrary to the message that the Constitution sends. Okay, great. Well, you, uh, Nick and Mike, had a, you, you both had a wonderful uh, We the People episode last year to discuss the Arizona redistricting case, and we'll link to that episode on our blog and in our show notes so people can review that. But Nick, I guess there are two questions on the table. One, was the court uh, correct in, in the LULAC and other cases to suggest that partisan gerrymandering is justiciable, as they say, um, and the second, is your standard the right standard? Why, why don't we just, because uh, 
Mike put it on the table, respond to his argument that the, the, the framers of the Constitution anticipated political gerrymandering. For goodness sake, uh, Elbridge Gerry or Elbridge Gerry himself uh, engaged in gerrymandering. So uh, why was the court correct in the LULAC case to say that partisan uh, gerrymandering is justiciable in the first place? Great. So I think there's sort of a low theory and a high theory explanation for what we're trying to do in uh, Whitford and in these partisan gerrymandering cases. Uh, the low theory explanation is just that, you know, for 30 years, the Supreme Court has recognized a cause of action for partisan gerrymandering. So without deciding whether we're textualists or originalists or what have you, all sides agree that we should pay attention to what Supreme Court doctrine is. And that's exactly what we're doing. So in 1986, the court said that there does exist a cause of action under the Equal Protection Clause for partisan gerrymandering. The court reaffirmed in 2004 and 2006 that this cause of action for partisan gerrymandering exists. And all we're doing here is taking the Supreme Court at its word and trying to faithfully apply the, uh, the court's own doctrine and to figure out what the uh, proper test for partisan gerrymandering ought to be. Um, so that's sort of the low theory explanation for, uh, for the lawsuit. Uh, the high theory explanation is that there's uh, a very well-established view that one of the most important purposes of the Supreme Court in our constitutional uh, and democratic structure is to ensure that our democracy functions well and properly. And uh, when there are malfunctions or misfires in our democracy, it's the court's job to step in and to fix those problems. And partisan gerrymandering is one of the most extreme, one of the most egregious abuses of democracy in America today. You know, it's a way that uh, temporary partisan majorities are able to entrench themselves in power against the will of the voters, you know, against the will of the electorate. Partisan gerrymandering is a practice that allows majorities to, uh, or uh, uh, entrenched uh, legislative majorities to enact policies that don't reflect the will of the people. And so this is exactly the kind of democratic abuse that on this account, it's the court's job to intervene to stop. Uh, and so that's the more high theory explanation or justification for our lawsuit. Uh, it's a way for the Supreme Court to step in to correct one of the most egregious and problematic abuses of democracy in modern American politics. Great. Thank you very much for that. So, Mike, let us um, accept, just for the sake of argument, Nick's uh, accurate description that the Supreme Court has held that partisan gerrymandering is is justiciable. I know you don't think it should be, but but uh, for now it is. What do you think of of, the, of Nick's standard, which the court adopted? In particular, uh, the court held that in the Wisconsin election, there was an efficiency gap of 13% in favor of the Republicans. Remember, the efficiency gap is the difference between the party's wasted votes divided by the total number of votes. And the plaintiffs argued that a 7% bias should be considered unconstitutional because that's the point at which you can be confident that that entrenchment is going to persist over time. And there's a more than 95% chance that the plan will never favor the other party in a subsequent election. Uh, just on its own terms, uh, is Nick's standard a plausible standard for measuring partisan gerrymandering? I think it's based on some very questionable assumptions. I think that it's based on assumptions that people 
vote more based on party than on individual candidates that they're not going to take into account the merits of individual candidates that they can be counted on to vote primarily perhaps even exclusively for members of a political party regardless of who they are i think recent election cycles cast that type of assumption into doubt and overall the notion of a candidate having too many votes that there that there are wasted votes that need to be reallocated to other candidates again both as a matter of political theory as a matter of democratic theory i would i would push back against that i would resist that the notion that there are quote unquote just right districts where as long as you don't win by too much or as long as you don't lose by too much that shows that there was a fair fight i don't know i don't know that you need that i don't know that democracy requires us to try to almost reverse engineer legislative districts based on past outcomes of previous elections and just like in the investment context you know past past results are no guarantee of future performance we see you know although we do see incumbents enjoying a degree of success it's in, uh, more so than most challengers it's impossible to say that that's the result of unfairness as opposed to many people disliking Congress in general, but liking their congressperson or disliking you know, the state or the legislature in general, but liking their local state representatives. And so in the absence of any ability to show an unfairness, the simple fact that an efficiency gap exists, I don't think is to a, a threat to our fundamental democratic institutions. Great. Uh, Nick, your response to Mike's claim that uh, partisan gerrymandering is not a fundamental threat to our uh, fundamental institutions. And at this point, I'll give a shout out to the really interesting debate that the Constitution Center hosted with Intelligence Squared a few weeks ago. We the People listeners, please listen to that podcast if you haven't heard it yet. The resolution was resolved. Partisan gerrymandering has uh, destroyed the political center and at the end, the audience voted, uh, you know, qu quite uh, dramatically, uh, shifted its position and, and held that it wasn't partisan gerrymandering that had destroyed the political center, but instead things like geographic self-sorting and, and media filter bubble. So, so why, Nick, should we really be so concerned about partisan gerrymandering in the first place? Um, so I'll say that I agree with the audience in that recent debate that uh, partisan gerrymandering is not the explanation for the uh, rise in uh, polarization in American politics today. Uh, I think there are lots of, of uh, other causes for the rise in polarization. Uh, but I think the harm of partisan gerrymandering is worse than uh, mere legislative polarization. Uh, the harm of partisan gerrymandering ultimately is that it allows uh, a legislative minority that does not command the support of the voters to enact policies that then don't reflect the will of the electorate. And uh, in a democracy, there is nothing worse than that. You know, there's nothing worse than uh, public policy being enacted that the people themselves don't want. And that's what partisan gerrymandering enables. Uh, polarization, I think, is a second order problem. But the uh, distortion of policy outcomes and policy outcomes that don't reflect what the voters want, that's a first-order problem that is corrosive of the basic meaning of democracy. Uh, and so Michael raised a couple of interesting points that I want to address. Uh, one is that a lot of voters vote based on the person, not based on the party. So 
if that were true, and it's an empirical question, if that were true, there wouldn't be any such thing as partisan gerrymandering. So if uh, all voters basically made up their minds based on who happened to be running in their particular district, then it wouldn't make sense to say that somebody is a Republican or a Democrat. They would just be voters making up their minds given the particular choices they're given in a given election. Um, however, at least as of 2016 in modern American politics, that is barely how anybody actually makes up their mind to vote. So if you tell me what the presidential vote looks like in a precinct, in a district, in a state, I, as an empirical statistical matter, can tell you with something like 99% accuracy how those same exact people vote in their congressional elections, in their senatorial elections, in their state house elections, in their state senate elections. So we might all like a world where people make individual distinctions among different races, but it's simply not the world we live in. So for most voters, partisanship is an unbelievably strong driver of their voting choices at every single political level. Uh, and it's that empirical reality that makes partisan gerrymandering possible. Uh, the second point, very quickly, is that you know, Michael said that you know, uh, uh, past uh, performance is no guarantee of future results. Uh, and that's important. You know, uh, just because a plan looked unfair in a single election, uh, I don't think that ought to be enough to strike down that plan. Uh, I think it's very important that in any doctrine that deals with partisan gerrymandering, that the durability or the resilience of a partisan gerrymander be taken into account. Uh, and that was one issue that we stressed over and over in Wisconsin. Uh, so the problem was not just that Wisconsin had very large efficiency gaps in 2012 and 2014. Uh, the real problem was that given any plausible shifts in voter sentiment over the rest of the decade, the map would remain heavily biased in a Republican direction. And so that consistency, that persistence of gerrymandering is uh, just as much as the size of gerrymandering what we were objecting to in the Wisconsin case. Great. Okay, Mike, some responses to Nick's uh, rebuttal about the degree to which uh, the gerrymanders entrench a political party and allow it, uh, according to Nick, uh, to guarantee that the policy results of the legislature do not represent the will of the majority. Is that a democratic problem? And might that even violate the spirit of the Republican form of government clause, Article 4, Section 4, the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. At the time of the Civil War, there was concern that legislatures were thwarting the will of the majority. Um, is, is that a democratic concern? So Nick raised a lot of interesting points. First, and it's interesting that this, that this case arose from Wisconsin, where I think it's perhaps even more of a challenge and an even greater accomplishment that 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 Nick and his uh, co-counsel were able to win. Wisconsin doesn't register voters by political party. So it, when we're talking about Republicans and Democrats, it's not necessarily the same formalistic, hard and fast, indisputable system you would have in, in perhaps some other states where you do have formal official party registration. So as, as an initial matter, the, the underlying data, who we are attributing as being the Democratic voters, the Republican voters, I do think that this is that this requires 
litigants and certainly courts to read a lot into the subjective mindsets of individuals and perhaps even engage in trying i don't want to i don't want to use the word stereotyping but in in assigning labels to people that they themselves haven't adopted for themselves i'd be interested in hearing more about the the application of Nick's theory to independent voters in states where you can register by party. I mean, these are people who, on the one hand, have deliberately chosen not to affiliate themselves, not to publicly identify themselves as members of a political party. It would seem to me that particularly given the substantially large percentage of the American population that do identify as independent voters or unaffiliated voters, the notion that they nevertheless have this unbending unthinking, reflexive desire to just vote categorically down the party line, which is one of the premises that any type of political gerrymandering theory seems to be built on, I would push push back on. But m- most fundamentally, the, the point that I had wanted to make is Nick's theory and and many theories of political gerrymandering in general are based on the seem to me to be based on the notion that we need to look at the desire of the people as a whole, the people across the entire state, and roughly the state legislature should reflect that overall distribution of preferences as a whole. But the whole point of certainly the federal government in general, many state government systems, isn't just to allow the undiluted mass of all the people to directly translate their will into into law or through their elect representatives to, to translate their will into law. The, the way that certainly the federal government is structured, that many state governments are structured, we try to ensure that the will of the people is channeled. It's channeled through various institutions. It's channeled through various bodies of government that certainly as an original matter were elected in, in different ways, that there were other long-term structural interests and in institutions that, that state legislatures and Congress were enacted in order to try to protect and promote. And so while I agree that at one level, yes, in in one understanding of democracy, Nick's theory and political gerrymandering case law in general is pro-democratic in this radical democracy sense, I would argue that that's not the type of Republican democracy, if you will, small r Republican, of course, it's not the type of Republican democracy that the framers built into the Constitution, and certainly nothing that the Equal Protection Clause was intended to try to protect, that basically we have these new rules that are being created that were never, did never even within the the people's thinking at the time the 14th Amendment were adopted. And so all of these restrictions on democratically elected state legislatures, from where are they deriving their legitimacy? They were never debated. They were never ratified. It literally is unelected judges crafting these rules. And so, you know, the not to get into a separate debate on judicial activism, but the fur the 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 more creative courts are in interpreting the Constitution and in applying provisions to areas well beyond their original intent, the less truly democratic legitimacy you have for those counter-majoritarian bodies to be to be imposing their will. Great. All right. Well, let's take one beat on the racial redistricting cases the court heard yesterday, and then we'll have closing arguments. On uh, December 
Fourth, the justices heard uh, two cases on the drawing of voting districts from Virginia and North Carolina, trying to figure out how to disentangle the roles of race and partisanship when African-American votes favor Democrats. Justice Kagan at one point said, if it's politics, it's fine. If it's race, it's not. The problem is that race and politics correlate. Uh, Nick, uh, what is the relationship between the justices' approach to racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering, and might the two align as Justice Stevens always thought that they should? Uh, so I hope they don't align. Uh, at the moment, the way the court tackles racial gerrymandering cases is by focusing on individual districts and trying to figure out if race was the predominant reason why uh, particular districts have the, uh, the shape that they do. And that might make sense when you're dealing with race. Maybe race has a uh, stronger effect for some districts than for others. But that approach, I think, is untenable and incoherent when it comes to partisan gerrymandering. Uh, so when state legislatures are trying to design a partisan gerrymander, uh, they don't care what District 2 or District 7 looks like. Uh, their goal is to get the maximum partisan advantage for their side out of the entire state map as a whole. Uh, and so I think that approaching partisan gerrymandering from a district-specific perspective, the way the court does in the racial context, uh, simply makes no sense in the partisan context. Because the goal of a mapmaker when it comes to a partisan gerrymander is to make sure that the overall effect or consequences of a map as a whole uh, benefit one side and disadvantage another side. So when it comes to the partisan context, you simply have to look at maps in their entirety, uh, considering all of the districts in the map. Uh, that's exactly how the legislature thinks about the districts when it draws the districts. And it makes sense for courts to take the same approach when they review these plans for uh, compliance with the Constitution. Thank you for that. Mike, your thoughts on the significance of the racial gerrymander in case the court heard earlier this week, and, and broadly, Justice Stevens thought racial gerrymandering and partisan gerrymandering should be evaluated at the same high level of scrutiny. Justice Scalia thought that racial gerrymandering but not partisan gerrymandering should be strictly scrutinized and some of the liberal justices think that partisan gerrymandering should be scrutinized more strictly than racial uh, gerrymandering. What is your position? Given our country's history with race, particularly given the race-based disenfranchisement that happened throughout many states, throughout a substantial amount of American history, I absolutely agree with the, the court taking a very dim view and applying very strict level of scrutiny to race-based gerrymandering. I think certainly if you look to the original intent of the Equal Protection Clause of the Reconstruction Amendments as a whole, obviously protecting African Americans in particular and combating racial discrimination more broadly lies at the heart of these provisions. And so I think that the court is on its firmest basis in using these provisions to strike down racial gerrymandering to fight efforts to try to either disenfranchise or reduce the impact of uh, members of minority communities votes. I, I disagree a little bit with what Nick's suggestion that partisan gerrymandering necessarily has, if, if we were to accept this concept, that it necessarily has to occur on an all or nothing basis any more than 
racially uh, gerrymandered districts would have to occur on an all or nothing basis. You could easily imagine redistricting maps being drawn in which the boundaries of certain districts are adjusted or changed for partisan concerns, but that otherwise the, the maps are based on legitimate neutral concerns. So while I think that for certainly the facts of this case suggest that the entire map was based on what the court found to be impermissible partisan considerations, I don't necessarily think that that would always be a, a, a feature of political gerrymandering cases. One of the one of the challenges that these types of cases bring, both racial and political gerrymandering, is the relevance of the intent prong, because the, the and the and the court and the the district court here reaffirmed, of course, that if the intent behind re, a, a a particular district is to give a partisan advantage, that is enough to raise equal protection concerns, and so. One of the issues is, could you have a map that is neutral and is legitimate and would be permissible, except for the fact that some of the people involved in the process had bad thoughts, so to speak, or were or had crafted it in order to try to maximize their advantage. But there are other legitimate, objectively reasonable bases for explaining those those types of those types of boundaries. So I think that particularly as is as this case as as this case uh, is is considered on further appeal, and certainly as more of these cases play out in other jurisdictions, we'll see a lot of these issues fleshed out. Thank you so much for that. All right, gentlemen, it's time for closing arguments in this fascinating debate. Uh, Nick, the first one is to you. Why was the Wisconsin partisan gerrymandering unconstitutional, and why should our listeners care about it? Uh, so why was the plan unconstitutional? Because it was a deliberate effort by Republicans in Wisconsin to disadvantage Democrats by uh, the way in which they drew the district lines. And not only was the effort intentional, but it also had its effect. So uh, Democrats in Wisconsin are severely and they are durably disadvantaged uh, by the district plan in terms of how their uh, votes in the state translate into seats in the legislature. And what's more, there's no neutral justification for this. Uh, the only explanation for the map is uh, partisan greed, partisan uh, advantage. Uh, there are any number of dozens or hundreds of maps that could have been drawn in Wisconsin that would not have resulted in the same severe and durable Republican advantage for the rest of the decade in the state. Uh, why should we care about this? Well, you know, Wisconsin is just one state, but there are uh, similar partisan gerrymanders in effect in state after state across the country. And sometimes Republicans are the ones who have implemented these gerrymanders, and sometimes de Democrats are the ones who have enacted them. But either way, the will of the electorate is being distorted. And this is a pervasive cancer on American democracy. And so if the Wisconsin case's approach were generalized, uh, if partisan gerrymanders around the country uh, began to be struck down, this would be a dramatic, dramatic improvement for the state of American democracy. Uh, it would mean that when it comes to both state legislatures and Congress, finally, the will of the people is being heard. And we don't get legislative chambers and congressional delegations that flout and disrespect what the voters in those states actually want. So it's potentially a very big deal. 
and a very positive development. Uh, I would say, you know, there's the promise here, at least, of the uh, most dramatic improvement in the state of American democracy in decades. And that's why the Wisconsin case is a big deal. Thanks so much, Nick. Mike, last word to you. Why do you believe that the partisan gerrymandering in Wisconsin was not unconstitutional? And why should listeners uh, care about this issue? It's not so much a question of whether it was constitutional or not as whether courts are the appropriate institution to be making these decisions. Unelected judges should try to stay out of the political process to the extent possible. The whole reason we have a political question doctrine is precisely because where the Constitution does not provide objective, judicially manageable standards for courts to apply in adjudicating cases, courts are supposed to leave these types of decisions to the popularly elected branches, to at, at the state at state legislatures to congress to the to the president and so the more we allow courts out of whole cloth to craft new and creative interpretations and applications of the equal protection clause that it constitutionally prohibits efficiency gaps or that it is unconstitutional to have too many votes in a particular district for a particular representative the more courts are able to create these doctrines, the more we are giving them the power to shape our political system and determine what proper outcomes should be. At looking at the constitutional issue specifically, the right to vote at root is an individual right. It is a personal right. And as long as people have an opportunity to cast their ballots, those ballots are counted, they are given full effect, they are given equal weighting with the votes of other people, the notion that above and beyond that, the Constitution somehow protects a certain percentage chance of having your desired candidate win the election, which is at root at the heart of every one of these political gerrymandering claims, the, the the claims that people of a certain political persuasion or members of a political party have the right to have their preferred candidates elected, I don't think that's fundamentally consistent with the notion of voting as an individual right, as a personal right that the Constitution protects. Thank you so much, Michael Morley and Nick Stephanopoulos, for an illuminating and challenging and educational discussion of a complicated but deeply important question, uh, partisan gerrymandering. Nick, Mike, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thrilled to be here. Likewise. Today's show was engineered by Jason Gregory and produced by Nicandro Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook, Twitter, or at ConstitutionCTR. If you want to know what you think of the podcast, Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org or me, Jay Rosen, at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People and our companion podcast, Live at America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. And finally, despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support and we rely on the generosity of people around the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education, which is now more urgent than ever. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. 
On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.